Some of you may be wondering, as we go through the Old Testament on a Sunday morning, what's the value of the Old Testament? I know some of you have been thinking all we're dealing with is wars and <laughs> bloodshed and what's going on here, Pastor Michael. Can't we go to Ephesians or some sort of happy book? I was, I was driving here and a pastor said a Bible came out and I think it was something called like the positive Bible and all the positive passages are highlighted in blue. And so there's a lot of passages in, in that version of the Bible that are not highlighted. And he was saying in the book of Revelation, half of the verses are highlighted and then part B of the verse is not highlighted because it's positive and then negative. <laughs> well, we can do all we want to do to read only the blue verses, right? If you're Mr. or Mrs. Positive, I give you kudos. I love positive people. But I have to tell you that the Bible gives us both sides of the equation. The Bible characters that we love and know the best had feet of clay. And the Bible does not give us any kind of false impressions about who they were and their mistakes. We get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly as we study the Bible. And it's a real book for real people who all need help. In 1 Corinthians 10, um, you'll see that the Apostle Paul tells us about the value of studying the life of Israel. In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then this warning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think the NIV says be careful. Be careful that when you read Bible stories or you read about the wilderness wanderings of Israel and you maybe say to a friend of yours or in a Bible study or maybe in your own heart and mind, how could they do something like that? They saw 10 Mighty plagues by the power of God. He opened the sea by the blast of his nostril. How could they be so stupid? <laughs> and then you go to work on a Monday. And you do something stupid. Whether on the freeway or when you just have arrived to work. And maybe you have said to yourself even recently, how could I do something like that? Be careful lest you fall. A good, healthy soberness about your own weaknesses is a good thing. In fact, I think we can be most vulnerable when we're overconfident. No temptation, look at verse 13 in the same text, has overtaken you, but as such is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will provide what? A way out a way of escape. When you read 2 Samuel 11, you're going to find yourself continuing to say, David, take the way of escape. David, please take the door of escape. David, stop. Don't take another step in this terrible fall of yours. David, please. But David doesn't take the way of escape. He doesn't. 
And David's story has been repeated over and over again outside and inside the church. And many people in leadership and otherwise have fallen and fallen hard. In 2 Samuel 11, if you go over there, 2 Samuel 11, we'll pick up the story and we will watch David. Um, I was part of a, a big uh, pastor's conference last Tuesday put on by KKLA. 700 pastors showed up at Azusa Pacific uh, University, which was awesome. The worship was awesome. The speakers were awesome. <clears throat> I was on a panel and we did a little Q&A from the various uh, people submitted questions. And one of the pastors that was up there said that someone said to him along his journey after he had made a major mistake, God's not done with you yet. And now, today he's a pastor. And so I'll just say this to you that <clears throat> if, if this story hits really close to home and you have fallen on your face, can I just say that God's not done with you yet? God is the God of second, third, and 133rd chances. <laughs> His mercies are new, how often? Every morning. And I need them every morning. So here's the story. It happened, 2 Samuel 11, and sometimes life just happens, right? I'm reading for the New American Standard. I think the New King James has similar language. Then it happened. <laughs> Doesn't it seem like we're, we're just cruising along, smooth sailing, and then something just happens, right? It's not like we always, when we have a fall, it's not like we were looking for trouble. Sometimes things just happen. It was in the spring of the year, literally the return of the year, 2 Samuel 11, 1, at the time when kings go out to battle. Kings would battle in the spring, typically, because the weather was good, winter had passed, usually crops were plenty, and so it was easier to take care of your troops and that kind of thing. So the winter would often shut down battles because of the weather and the difficulty therein. That David sent Joab, Joab was his commander, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon. This is recorded in chapter 10, and we'll circle back, as I mentioned earlier. And they besieged Rabbah. Rabbah was the capital city. But David stayed. The, the verb here for stayed could be David was sitting at Jerusalem. Now, we know David was a warrior, and chronologists of the Bible say that David was around 50 at this time. So 50 is that classic age of the midlife crisis. I bought a Harley Davidson a few years ago just to see if it would do anything with my midlife crisis. A friend of mine said, Pastor Michael, are you having a midlife crisis? And I said, yes. <laughs> so there you go. David wasn't a sitter. He was, he was a warrior. He loved to be engaged in battle. In fact, when everybody else was running from Goliath and wanted nothing to do with Goliath. It was David who said, this guy's not gonna defy the armies of Israel, this uncircumcised Philistine, no, no, no. But David now had a palace. He was 50. We read in other passages that some of his advisors were telling him not to fight because they didn't want him to perish because he was the leader of the nation. But kings, even if they weren't involved directly in the battle would often at least be with their troops to give direction and battle plans. And sometimes they would hang back so that they weren't, wouldn't be killed, but David wasn't there. He had sent his army off 
and David stayed at Jerusalem. He was sitting. Many commentators of the Bible have said that idleness was the first step in the anatomy of David's fall. If you're taking notes, idleness is a step toward a fall. Now, what is idleness? Well, idleness is not resting because the Bible tells us that we need rest. So you can't just say if someone's just kicking back or spending a day or on vacation that they're idle. That's not what idleness is. Idleness, listen to this quote, is activity to no purpose. Idleness is activity to no purpose. You've heard it said before, idleness is the devil's playground. How many purposeless people live in our world, even in our city? Oh, there are myriads. They're doing something this morning, but to no purpose. In fact, I, I had mentioned to you a few weeks ago that Ravi Zacharias addressed about 50,000 university students in a multi-site talk that he had given, and they got feedback. And one of the things that the students as they responded to the talk, asked is, does my life mean anything? In secular humanism and evolutionary theory, frankly, it doesn't. You are just a random uh, result of purposeless, mindless chance in evolutionary theory. You're going nowhere, and your life is just an accident anyway. That is quite the opposite of what the Bible teaches, that you have been prepared for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Your life has a purpose. But in our educational system, and this is not to put down those who teach in universities because it's not true across the board, but secular humanism has gotten a foothold and people are wondering if anything matters anymore. In fact, people are starting to question whether there's such a thing as truth and whether words even mean anything anymore. This is where we are. And so David was there at the palace. He had a cushy palace. Samuel Johnson said, if you are idle, be not solitary. If you are solitary, be not idle. He was alone. Sometimes when we find ourselves in a vulnerable spot, that's a good time to call a friend and say, man, I'm feeling like I could make a major mistake right now. If you have issues of sin patterns in your life, well, we might call habitual struggles, which does happen to Christians, let's face it, then get an accountability partner, and when you're feeling weak, pick up the phone and say, would you walk with me through these next couple of hours or through this valley or through this season? David had laid his armor aside. The Bible says, put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against what? The schemes of the devil. But he laid his armor aside. He was vulnerable, weak, idle. Verse two. And when evening came, David arose from his bed. Now in the ancient world, apparently a midday rest, siesta, nap, power nap, was something that they practiced. And I praise the Lord for that. I think that's extremely biblical. <laughs> and as I get older, I'm more and more convinced in my theological perspective. But anyway. So David was kicking back. I don't know if he had taken a snooze, but he rose from his bed. Some versions say his couch. And he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw 
Now, to walk around on your roof was common in the ancient world. People didn't really have backyards or porches. The roof is where you spent a lot of your time uh, just, you know, maybe enjoying a meal or just kicking back. You can, you can read a lot about this in the Bible and in other uh, ancient sources. So it wasn't unusual that David would be walking around on his roof. He probably had walked this many times. He had a good view from the palace. Um, in fact, if you get a chance to go to Jerusalem, you can have lunch at restaurants on the roof of the restaurant. And from the roof, you get a great view of the city. I was at a restaurant uh, some years back, eating a great meal overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And it gives you a wonderful view of what's going on. And so David's palace, I would imagine, was higher than most. And remember, it, it had been built on Mount Moriah, which was already an elevated place. So from David's palace, you could see the city well. And I wonder how many times he had walked the walk, you know, just gazing over his kingdom. Nothing wrong with that, right? Watching the city view and that kind of thing. But from the roof, he saw. He saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, at first, you could say, well, maybe this was just an accidental moment where David, you know, he's just surveying his kingdom, he's kicking back, and he saw something that he wasn't intending to see. And that's quite possible that, you know, this just happened, and I'm sure it wasn't an everyday occurrence, but somehow he looked, and there was this woman, and she was bathing, and he just was caught off guard. But there's something else here that I think we need to consider that I just thought about this week, and I'll just lay it out for you. Is it possible that David knew well who lived there and what the practices of this house were? I, I suppose it's possible. In our modern age today, if you want to look for something in this category, that is to see a naked individual, to be blunt, you can find it. The accessibility of these kinds of images in our day is so incredible that it has become a national and international epidemic. And I'm not talking about just outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church. I was listening to a program from Focus on the Family just this last week. Levi Lusco was being interviewed. He's written a book called Swipe Right. Swipe Right, I guess, is a... Uh, term that's becoming more and more popular where there are apps now, there, there's something like dating sites, but it's more like a casual site where you can hook up with somebody. And if you like their picture on these apps, you swipe right. If you don't like it, you swipe left. And if you swipe right and they swipe right on your photo and you swipe right on their photo, then you can pursue a relationship, which is often just a casual encounter for one night with a person. Because in our culture, more and more of the younger generation, millennials and otherwise, are beginning to ask questions about what marriage and covenants really mean. Do they mean anything at all? With the redefinition of marriage now all over the United States and the casual approach that uh, comes to this area of life, People are asking questions like, should you even be married? What does a covenant really mean? What is marriage? And when 
Staples of society, biblical staples, ideas of God, marriage is God's idea, governed by God, begin to be redefined, a culture begins to lose its way. After the same-sex marriage laws came down the pike, there's groups of people right now that are now saying that they want what's called polyamory to pass. This is group marriage now. So if you want to have six and seven spouses of different genders within a marriage group, that should be fine because who's to say that's wrong? And if you want to include your dog, cat, and whatever else in the marriage, well, who's to say that's wrong? I mean, think about it. If you begin to redefine what marriage means, where does it stop? Who gets to define what the borders are? We're on a slippery slope, and I hope you can see it. And so more than ever, the church is facing some really serious cultural winds that are blowing hard in our direction, and we're gonna have to decide if we're gonna stand for biblical values or not, and it's not popular. And so there's David. Levi Lusco, by the way, said uh, the average uh, six-year-old gets their first Exposure to pornography in our world at the age of six. One in three 13-year-olds are addicted to pornography. Watching over 50 clips a week. One in three 13-year-olds. It's our world. And so we can see how this applies. In that interview, he said he was exposed to it at a young age and he said, it takes 15 minutes to look and about 15 years to forget what you saw. But then he went on to confess that he's not even sure it's 15 years because some of you understand what I'm talking about, that when you see something, you don't really unsee it. And when they're talking about healthiness, and I'm just being real with you guys because this is where we live and the church has got to address it and here's where we are in our Bible. They're, they're talking about the healthiest people in marriage relationships and intimacy are the ones who never were exposed to that kind of stuff. They're the healthiest in their marriages. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, be renewed and, and have, you know, a chance to start over no matter what's happened to us. I'm not talking about that it's over for any of us because we know that in Christ there's, we're new creations, right? There's always a new beginning, but here's what happened. David looked, he saw she was bathing and she was very beautiful in appearance. She was stunning. And there she was, and David saw her. Now David had a decision like, I suppose everybody has a decision to make when something like this comes before us. Some of you may have accidentally come across something. We know how prevalent this is. So you can get an image on your phone or your computer or there can even be a billboard or a magazine when you're in the grocery line. And so there it is, right? And so sometimes you had no intention. You could be flipping channels, you know. Uh, you could be watching something on Netflix and all of a sudden, wow, there it is, right? So when that happens, you have a decision to make. And the decision that you need to make now is what you're going to do with that. Are you going to turn it off? Are you going to turn away? Are you going to delete that? Or are you going to play with fire? 
book of Proverbs says, if you take fire to your chest, you are going to be burned. There's just no two ways about it. And so David looked and he had a moment of decision. Jesus brought this up in Matthew 5. Uh, Weist, uh, he uh, translates it this way. Everyone who is looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passion for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You can reference Matthew 5, 27 and 28. The book of James uh, deals with this as well. It says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, James 1, 12 through 15. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know, uh, there's an old story about uh, a conversation between Adam and God. And he says about Eve, why did you make her so beautiful? And God responds, so you would love her. But why did you make her so dumb? And God responds, so she would love you. That's from Second Opinions, chapter three. In the book of Job, perhaps one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman to lust after her. If you are married and you have wandering eyes, let me just say to you, your spouse notices. Can I say that again? If you're married and you have wandering eyes, your spouse notices. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think that was going to be so troublesome. That was just a minor point. Uh, it's just going to move on. But let's park there. When something comes across the computer screen that's beautiful. There's a difference between admiring beauty and lusting after somebody. And you know the difference. You know it. I don't have to explain it to you. You already know it. There's a difference between saying, as one pastor put it many years ago, good job, God. Wow, that person is good looking. It's another thing to begin to indulge a fantasy of focusing on that person with all the wrong thoughts and you, you get it, right? You don't have to go there. You can just say, boy, that person is handsome. Boy, that person is pretty. And that's it. See, sometimes in the Christian church, we get the idea that Christians got to walk around like this. I'm not going to look. Look, we want you to look where you're going, okay? And if you see somebody beautiful, it's okay to admire beauty and leave it at that. But if you begin to indulge and you go beyond that, Jesus says at some point, in that process, it becomes adultery. 
It's spiritual adultery. And of course, that what I just described to you sounds fairly innocent, right? It sounds, you know, like kind of everyday life, but I've been talking to you about what's going on with our culture and the epidemic of pornography. Turn to the book of Proverbs, which is to your right. Proverbs, right after the Psalms. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a good book, and it's 31 chapters. Proverbs 5, to, to read regularly. Proverbs 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. Proverbs 5, 14 says, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. 5.15 of Proverbs. It says, drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Question mark. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain, 5.18, be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, this is written by Solomon, by the way, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so <laughs> physician, heal thyself, right? For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Turn back to 2 Samuel 11. David had already opened the door for this sin. Here's why. Deuteronomy says that a man, a king, is not to multiply horses or wives to himself. And by our count, once this is done, David has at least eight wives. Why did David do this? Why did he disobey God in this area? The book of Genesis is very clear. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, 24. Right at the outside of outset of the biblical record, God defines what he made and God governs it. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage is God's plan. You say, well, then why did God allow all this polygamy among some of the most famous Bible characters? I don't know. But he let them make their choices. And if you study the biblical record, you will find that every time there's a polygamous relationship, it is a disaster. God will allow you, even if you are one of his closest followers, to make your choices every day. What you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to watch. I'm sure you've noticed. You get the right to choose. And the Bible says to choose wisely. And so David is there on the roof. He's seen something. Obviously, she was attractive. But David's got a home. He's got children. He's already got too many wives. What in the world is he doing? 
It's not like God hadn't blessed him. It's not like he didn't have companionship. And as the king, he pretty much was, you know, doing well in these areas of life as far as he didn't really need to go there. But there's David on the roof. And David took the next step in the fall, the anatomy of a fall. David sent, verse three. He sent for her. Why? He's already married. Why send for her? Do you need more information about sin? When you're being tempted, do you need to find out more facts? You know, let's just break that down. Let's see if we can get an analytical study of the different angles of this particular transgression. What? How about do what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife was propositioning him and he said, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna sin against God and I'm not gonna sin against my master. He's put me in charge of his entire house. The only thing he said is I can't touch you because you're married to him. And when she said, oh, come on, be with me, he said, no, no, and he ran away. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the man that sins sexually sins against his own body. Please hear me. If you have an encounter of intimacy with an individual, there is no such thing as a casual hookup. That is a lie. Every intimate interaction you have with an individual leaves an imprint on your soul. Can I get a witness? Look, we have all in this room, probably a good portion of us have made our mistakes and not done things God's way. But don't you believe that lie that you can just do whatever you want sexually and there's not gonna be an imprint on your soul. That is a big, fat lie. It's a lie. And it's a lie right from the pit. And there are many walking around in our world today that are broken, empty. They have guilty consciences. They're trying to deal with the fallout of decisions in this area or even things done to them, and it's just a downright shame. And David sent, and he inquired, verse three, about the woman. And one said, so David's obviously got other people who know what's going on. One said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Well, David sent. He inquired about the woman and, and somebody responded and said, oh, I know who she is. She's, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, by the way, is one of David's mighty men. At this current moment, he's on the battlefield fighting for David and David's kingdom. Now, at this point, you wanna yell, through the corridor of time at your Bible and say, David, take the way of escape. But let me just apply it to us. We've got to yell that to us. If you're contemplating the dangled carrot before you, you know, maybe I'll get a little bit more information about that. Can I just scream it to you? Take the way of escape. Don't do it. Don't go there. And there are people who sit in churches every week and they're contemplating cheating on their spouse. Let's just be real. It's the facts. 
And we could have all of our reasons. Well, you know, I'm not getting what I want out of the relationship or this person gives me compliments at work or whatever it may be. Can I just say to you, don't do it. Don't go there. Because what usually ends up happening with sin is you get tunnel vision on the carrot. Oh, wow, that carrot looks, it looks delectable. <laughs> this is what happens to me. People plant things up at this pulpit. <laughs> now, I, I try to figure out, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's done out of just pure generosity. Anyway, that's just... We'll just put that away. I've been donating many. You guys are so kind to your pastor, you know. I said something from the pulpit, and Snickers bars began to multiply. So I've been giving them away. But just so you guys know, my big screen has broken. You guys... Actually, it's been stolen. It's right there. Oh, okay. Anyway. Now take a look. Verse 3 says, She's the wife of Uriah. She's married. Oh, that, that's not a problem for many people in our modern society. Oh, you're, you're married? So what? There's websites that will tell you how to Sneak around if someone's married. You can go to those websites. Big deal if you're married, right? I was talking to a young man who was giving counsel to a friend of his. I won't name any names, but he was basically saying to his friend who's having some issues at home, and there's another person who is involved, and that person is already in their own covenant, and there's kids on both sides. And here was what my young friend said to his friend. Do you want to be that guy? Do you want to be the guy who ends up divorced, breaks up another home, all for your, whatever your reasons may be? Do you want to be that guy? Do you know in chapter 12, when Nathan the prophet is summoned by God to come to David and, and to tell him a story where he confronts David, he says to David, you are that guy. You got so upset at my story, and you'll see the story in, in 2 Samuel 12, you are that guy. Do you want to be that guy? You know, maybe the next time we're considering doing something dumb, we should ask ourselves, do you want to be that guy? Is that who you want to be? Oh, I know seasons of life are hard. We get frustrated. Maybe we feel hurt in our marriage relationship. I'll just tell you, you better strongly consider the moves that you make because you never sin in a vacuum. She's married. Do you know that Bathsheba in the... Uh, one interpretation of her, of her name means daughter of the covenant. Is that ironic or what? Her name means daughter of the covenant. 
David was so concerned about the Ark of the Covenant, making sure that it had, you know, it was in the proper place. Here's a daughter of the covenant. What is David doing? You don't need more information about sin. You don't need to toy with sin. The Bible says, be innocent in that which is evil. Romans 16, 19. And so he gets word about her. He finds out she's married. But it's not only that. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. He was loyal to David, much like Ahimelech the Hittite. In 1 Samuel 26, 6, the evidence is that Uriah is a uh, resident alien of Israel. He is converted to Judaism. He is converted to belief in the God of the Bible. In fact, he has a Hebrew name, which means, get this, Yahweh is my light. Uriah's name means the Lord is my light. David is supposed to represent the God of Israel. He's got people fighting for him, even people from other nations who have converted to belief in the God of the Bible because of the witness of the Jewish people and the scriptures. And in the New Testament, in Matthew 1, verse 6, Bathsheba is actually in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and the New Testament calls her the wife of Uriah, Matthew 1, 6. Not the wife of David, because if you've already read ahead or you've heard the story, they end up getting married after this whole sordid mess. But the New Testament doesn't acknowledge her in that way. Some other facts about the group. He took his faith in Yahweh seriously. Uh, furthermore, once David realized who Bathsheba was, she was the granddaughter of his favorite counselor, Ahithophel. That's found in 2334 and 1623. And Eliam was on reasonable assumption the son of Ahithophel, one of David's mighty men. These were all people close to David. This was not some family that he didn't know. These were people that he knew if he did this would be hurt and betrayed and wounded. But at this point, it doesn't seem to matter. And David sent messengers. This is verse four. David sent messengers. He takes the next step in, his, in the anatomy of a fall and he took her. The word took her could be rendered he seized her. The Hebrew word is laka. It can mean just to get, to receive, to acquire or it can be translated to lay hold of or seize or take away. At this moment for David, who for so long had refused to take power. He waited patiently on the Lord. He would not kill Saul. He has fallen from his greatness. What was the nature of his taking her? And does Bathsheba have any responsibility in this at all? You can read some commentaries who say that Bathsheba is in some way culpable. What's she doing bathing out in the open? Well, we're not sure how out in the open she actually was because from David's vantage point, he may, may have been able to see what others could not see. And why is she taking a bath? Well, if you look at verse four, it says David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and she had to feel the pressure since he's the king and he lay with her and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. If you have 
I think any of the other translations, it says this. This is the ESV. It says, uh, she, came and lay, she came to him. He lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. So here's the deal. The language seems to indicate that she was taking a bath at the end of her cycle, obeying the book of Leviticus. She had just gone through her female cycle, and this is Old Testament law, but this is what's happening now. She was taking a ritual bath to go through the cleanliness directives of the book of Leviticus, which means she had just been through her cycle, and now it was over, which the backstory is, this means that any child that is born or conceived at this time could only be from David and not from Uriah because Uriah is on the battlefield and she just went through her cycle. So if some conception occurs, it can't be Uriah's child. Everybody with me? So we have the little fact there. Not so much, it's not so much commentary on her action or that she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do it's probably more so that she's just obeying the Levitical laws. It's been commented in, as you can tell, this, is gonna, this message is gonna be done in multiple parts. <laughs> so don't get nervous. But Genesis 3, 6 is kind of echoed here. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise, and she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Do you see the anatomy of a fall? Genesis 3 is the fall chapter. The devil whispered. It looked good, although every fruit tree they had been given access to except the one tree. The one tree is what God said. You can't touch that one. You can have everything else, but the one, what are they doing next to the one tree that was forbidden? Well, that's how we are, right? And so he took her. He seized her. It could imply a violent taking, but it may not mean that. It just may mean that she felt pressure, and she may not have even known why he was calling her. But if you get called and beckoned by the king, what do you do? Well, you go. And she went. And so David sent his messengers and he took her and you know the rest of the story. They laid together and they had this encounter. And people think, well, you know, stuff like this we can do. We can, you can have an encounter with someone, uh, a one night stand and move on until you hear the fateful words of the end of verse five. I am pregnant. By the way, the only recorded words of Bathsheba in the whole story. I am pregnant. The commercials, the movies, the things that are trying to get you toward a certain way of life and lifestyle that's so exciting, they usually don't share with you that lots of times... That's the next phrase in the story. I am pregnant. But in the modern world, that's not a problem either. Because then you can just get rid of that child. And exacerbate and turn now what was an unfortunate situation into a double sin. Two wounded, one dead. 
But society will tell you, nah, that, that's not a big deal either. But do you see where it all comes back to? Once we lose the biblical moorings, the, the ways of God, God's not some killjoy in heaven. He wants you to enjoy that part of your life in the right time governed by God. He thought of it. It's his design. There's nothing wrong when it's satisfied in God's timing, governed by God in God's way. It's to be celebrated. Children are born. It's a good thing. But the devil takes what's good and twists it. And here's where we are. And so David is with her. She conceives, verse 5. And the faithful words, I am pregnant. Now I'm going to take you to the book of Romans, chapter 4. And this is going to be my last scripture for this morning. Romans 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And I want you to see something that's said about David. Because I know this is heavy and I know that some of you can very much relate to what's going on here. And you may be asking questions like, well, how do you recover from a fall? What do you do? Well, here's Romans 4. Three chapters, Paul pretty much spends on just saying that everybody's in the same sinking boat. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. That's 323 of Romans. Then he gets into justification as a gift in 324 by grace. Redemption. Being bought back happens through Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he names two of the heroes of the Old Testament of Israel. And he starts with Abraham. And this is Romans 4, verse 3. He says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. So if I had some weeds in my backyard and I hired you and I said, come work at my house and I'll pay you $15 an hour. And let's say that you work 10 hours, you work hard in my backyard, I owe you $150. When I pay you the $150, I shouldn't be saying, you know, you should be really grateful that I'm giving you this $150 right now. I'm such a benevolent gentleman. I'm such a good guy. Take the $150, but be grateful that I'm this kind of man. No, I think your response would be, we had a deal, Pastor Michael. You said you would pay me $15 an hour. I worked 10 hours. You owe me $150. You ain't so benevolent. Those weeds were like alien creatures in your backyard. And I'll never be back again. It's not a favor. It's what's owed to you. But to the one, Romans 4, 5, who does not work, but what? Believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith, her faith, is reckoned as righteousness. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's, here's what it means. When you believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation is a gift and righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ is given to your account simply by you placing faith in Jesus. Now here's how David comes into this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, verse 6, upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven 
and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will what? Not take into account. David wrote that in Psalm 32. And we'll look at some of these psalms that he writes in the aftermath of his fall. But he speaks about the blessing of being forgiven. There's a psalm that says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? I know this, and this is a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. I have sinned against God, and I'm talking about me now, more times than I would like to confess to you and admit. I've broken every one of God's top 10 commandments over and over again. And especially in my former life as a non-Christian, I sinned against God in so many different ways. And when I came to a church service like this and I heard the good news that my sin could be forgiven, that Jesus Christ was treated on the cross as though he was guilty of my sins, though he was completely innocent, that God so loved me that he gave his son, that even though I've sinned against God, God so loved me that he washes away my sins in the blood of his son. When I heard the good news of the gospel, that I can be forgiven of every sin I've ever committed in Jesus, nailed to the cross, Oh, my friend, I would just tell you, if you have not met him, run to him. Because he still saves sinners like you and me. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he washes away sin. And it's a gift. You don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be standing up here. I don't deserve his mercy, but he's given it to me anyway. And if you will cry out to him, you can be saved. Father, as we contemplate these truths found in the Bible, thank you so much that the Bible is real. Sometimes it's just extremely raw. It's right where we live. But we need it, Lord. And thank you that David, even though he's going to deal with so many consequences from these decisions. The Davidic covenant did not end because of this fall. David would have from his own family line, the Messiah would come, the savior of the world. And as we quickly approach Christmas on a Bethlehem night, the son of David would enter the world. After the genealogy in Matthew, this, the record of Jesus's birth is told very succinctly and Matthew says his name shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us you didn't leave us alone you entered into our pain you knew you were going to die you came to save us to bear witness to the truth and die on that horrible cross probably naked and alone and all because you so love your people. You so love the world. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus, this glorious Savior, 
If you've not met Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. If you've not met the one who's Savior of Jew and Gentile, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you can do that right now. Keep your head and heart bowed. And don't let this moment pass you by. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, pray this prayer if it's you. Come into my life. Thank you that you came to this earth to save me. Thank you that you lived the perfect life that I failed to live. Thank you that you died on that cross for me and were treated as though you had committed my sins, though you were innocent. Thank you for your blood shed for my sins. Thank you for your death and thank you for your resurrection from the dead. I trust you, pray it if it's you. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I'm gonna turn away from my sins right now and I'm gonna turn to you. I repent of my sin, I'm sorry. Give me a new beginning, give me a new start. Forgive me, cleanse me, restore my life. Lord, for those who are crying out to you, we know you are so gracious and faithful to hear those cries. If you're a prodigal in here and you've been toying with sin, you've been dangling on the edge, take this as a warning to take the way of escape before it's too late or it's gotten worse. Take the way of escape. And for all the believers here, Lord, the precious saints of God, Keep us strong. Let us be careful lest we fall. Let's not be overconfident in who we are or where we have come or think, oh, I could never do that. We could imagine watching a 2020 episode on Saturday night with these details and thinking, what was that person thinking? I could never do something like that until we find it was David, the man after your own heart. Oh, Lord, let us be careful. Let us put on the armor of God each day. Be reliant on your spirit. Walk in the victory that you have for us and walk wisely, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your faithfulness and your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.